Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You know, I've had 405 conversations for The Axe Files. I think this is the 406th, and I can honestly say there are a few that I enjoyed more than this conversation with Jeff Daniels, the brilliant actor who is the star of The Comey Rule, a special series on Showtime Sunday and Monday based on the memoir of former FBI director Jim Comey. Jeff Daniels is not only great at his craft, but it's just a delightful, thoughtful person who has lived his life not in Hollywood or New York, but the center of the country in Chelsea, Michigan, where he is a pillar of the community. And I just really, really relished my conversation with him about a range of things, including the state of politics today and what Hollywood's proper role is in commenting on these issues. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. Jeff Daniels, it's it's great to see you. The occasion being the the imminent rollout on Showtime of your uh, film uh, in two parts, uh, The Comey Rule, timely, and we will discuss that in detail as we bear down on the first uh, presidential debates and an election in which the Russians are once again players. So uh, we, we will get to that. But I want to talk a little bit, more than a little bit about you, because you are uh, kind of a mystery to me. You seem like aberrationally normal <laughs> for a movie star and an actor and i'm i'm curious about your your journey because you you live where you you grew up in michigan in a small town in michigan chelsea michigan and it seems like you kind of sprung from a normal norman rockwell painting in a way uh, and a lot of the actors i talk to have stories of struggle and difficult youth and they found ballast and acting and so on that that's this is a different kind of story yes it, it norman rockwell has been described what chelsea uh, uh was at one time the two two stop lights you know predominantly white small town raised in a republican household my father ran a lumber company in town he ended up being the president of the school board he's the head of the Methodist church. He was the mayor. He was revered. And um, I was the oldest son. And I was supposed to take over the lumber company. Yeah, what happened? Well, I um, what happened was a teacher in the sixth grade saw something. She was a choir teacher. Her name was Diane Elroy. And on a Friday afternoon, her sixth grade choir class, she just kind of pitched the lesson plan, was bored, and said, let's do skits. She didn't even know what improv was. Let's do skits. And she got me up to do, you're a, you're a politician giving a speech, and your pants are falling down. Go ahead. <laughs> and, and I can remember standing there and being in front of 30 kids, and and starting slowly, whatever a sixth grader thinks a political speech was, I started saying it out loud. And then she, and then I would tug at the belt and then tug at the side. By the end of three or four minutes, I was clinging to my pants like they had hundred pound weights on them. The class was hysterical. <laughs> she went to my parents and said, I don't know what's going on here, but you should pay attention to this. She was, yeah, she really? was, the, and that's sixth grade. So seventh grade, eighth grade, freshman in high school. I get into high school and the same teacher is now doing the high school musicals. And 
I was walking out of basketball practice after a three-hour basketball practice where all we did was run because we weren't good. <laughs> and I'm walking past the auditorium, and she was waiting for me as a sophomore. She said, get in here. Oh, God. South Pacific, I need sailors. And again, small town, anyone who can carry a tune is considered good enough to be in this musical. And she put me on stage, and I remember just do a dance to There Ain't Nothing Like a Dame, which I think was the song yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I just started doing this dance where I would like hop back and forth, and my knees would go up, and I'd bang my knees, you know, alter back and forth, back and forth. She had me do it three times. She put me in the, mus in the musical, in the play. I had two lines, and then I skipped the next year, which was a mistake. I, I kicked myself, and then as a senior, she had me play Fagin and Oliver, followed by Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof, 18, Midwestern, not a clue as to what Jewish was, but I saw Topol <laughs> do the movie six times, so I stole everything from him. Yeah, and then Harold Hill and Music Man and El Gallo and Fantastics and Oklahoma. I was Judd Fry and then on and on. Cornelius Hacko. She gave me opportunities. All, all in high school, huh? All in summer high school musicals, and then every summer she would uh -huh. do a summer musical, and then she'd get these six to eight kids who had a, an affinity for this, who could be in front of people, who could sing, who could dance, who knew how to bump bump with a joke. That just comes from timing you either have timing or you don't i had it i knew what to do in front of 700 people on a hot july night to make them laugh all at once it just came i just knew how to do that so my parents saw that and i can remember um my dad talking about what you did that night you know tevya or fagan and uh so supportive and we just go over it like after a football game you know each play <laughs> each song that thing you did that joke really landed tonight wasn't didn't work as much before why was it? i don't know i don't either let's figure it out and when i got a break to oh the long i went to central michigan university three years was doing plays succeeding there saw an ad for an audition for a bunch of kids for a rep festival at Eastern Michigan University, went down there, auditioned, that's going to go to the Detroit Red Wing game that night, get drunk with my college buddies. And one of the directors was from New York. He was Marshall W. Mason from the Circle Repertory Company, out there picking up a check from the head of the drama department at Eastern Michigan University, Jim Gussif. They went to school together at Northwestern. Come on out, pick up a check, direct some college kids, go back to your off-Broadway theater in New York. Marshall did that, and when he did that, he found me. And he said, you should come to New York, become an apprentice. I'm going to work your ass off, but you're going to take the classes, and you'll learn how to be an actor. No promises, no obligation, but here's a door, door in. And so I quit college after my junior year and went to New York and join the Circle Repertory Company with my father and mother's blessing. In fact, I, I read somewhere that you uh, that it was difficult for you at first, and you thought about quitting and coming home. Yeah. And, and your mom encouraged you to stay. First year, I was in a one-room apartment on 23rd and 7th Avenue. The two-way, the big 23rd Streets, where all the trucks, the flatbed trucks. Yeah, I grew up there. I, I know the I know the area. Boom, 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 Empty flatbeds going by the window, 10th floor. Uh, Son of Sam is walking around in 1977. You got the blackout. Yeah. And I said, I, you know what? I'm I'm okay not doing this. I don't need to do this. And my dad listened. You know, and he's got the lumberyard in the back of his mind, and yeah. And then he said, Marjorie, what do you think? And she said, find a way to stay and hung up. <laughs> and I did. In that very direct Midwestern small town way, how she delivered yeah, the message. Yeah, which is part of the whole Norman Rockwell thing. It's yeah. just like toughen up. You're from the Midwest. You're not yeah. from Yale. You're not from the coast. You're not from LA. You, don't, you didn't go to the big school. You went to Central Michigan University for three years. Then you dropped out. Toughen up. Yeah. You want this? You're good enough. Go. I mentioned uh, I grew up there, and when you were talking, I remember being 
basically conscripted by my math teacher at junior high school 104 at uh, 18th or Street and First Avenue to uh, I guess 20th and First to uh, be uh, Muddle the Tailor in uh, Fiddler on the Roof. The difference between you and me, though, was I didn't have the gifts. And it was a little bit terrifying to be in front of, to expose myself in that way in front of all these people. You obviously felt very comfortable uh, from the beginning in front of people and entertaining people. That That is, that that's unusual. And maybe that is also because you had that sort of foundational kind of mooring at home, that sense of confidence. Uh, my mother was strong and silent and tough, farmer, a farmer. She grew up on a farm. My dad was the life of the party. I remember one of my earliest memories is seeing a Kiwanis pageant where the Kiwanis members put on a big, you know, everybody gets to laugh. And my dad was in pink, a pink ballerina outfit <laughs> to Swan Lake wearing high top black Converse tennis shoes. And he would Swan Lake his way in that ballerina outfit across <laughs> the stage. 700 people went. Now, I remember being like five or six and seeing that and, and thinking it was, he was the funniest person I'd ever seen in my life. That even that first play, South Pacific, there wasn't any stage fright. Being on stage in front of people was a second home. It was the most natural thing in the world for me. And, and that's what the teacher saw. She saw this kid is, has a gene for being unafraid of, of being in front of the public. And that, that was key. You know, it's funny because I mentioned the other, other actors who I've spoken with and, you know, that the affirmation that they got was kind of a substitute for the affirmation that they didn't get in that they weren't getting in their lives. And that's the different thing. You know, it was like they yeah. needed that. They needed it. Yeah, I didn't have that. I had I, I, I was really, really good at something. Needed to go to New York to learn how to do it professionally and do it better, learn the fundamentals, the techniques, all that stuff. But I was really good at this. So, yeah. so you need to go chase that. This was never about, I've always wanted to be an actor. I've always wanted to be a star. I've needed attention. I was just really good at something. And I was just going to chase it until it blew up and went away. And that's why it was never about, and that's why one of the reasons I came home. So I, far, so good. Well, yeah, but it was never about... <laughs> So that the success of it was always just, am I getting better at what, what I'm doing? Is the craft of it better? Otherwise, and I, I can remember telling people, the most boring part of a play for me that I just can't connect to is the curtain call. I didn't care about it. I, didn't, I wanted the curtain to come down and send us all home. I, I know the audience is thanking us for doing what we did. I get it. But, you know, that walking to the front of the stage and being, my God, you love me, you love me. Yeah, yeah. Never. It was Teflon. It yeah. never Still doesn't. You hooked up through Marshall Mason uh, with a, uh, a writer, Lanford Wilson, who uh, created a Pulitzer Prize winning writer. He also was a player in your life. Huge mentor. I went to New York in 1976. I was 21 years old. I became an apprentice that September 76 and I walked into the circle rep offices having previously in the spring played in one of those plays that Marshall directed was Hot El Baltimore written by Lanford Wilson. I love that play and and now four months later I'm walking into the office of circle rep for the first time and there's Lanford Wilson splayed out in a chair <laughs> and I'm going it was the first star I ever met and and I, I, I was tongue-tied, and I said, Mr. Wilson, I'm Jeff Daniels. I'm one of the new apprentices. Oh, hey, Dal. How are you? How are you? <laughs> what, are you what are you working on anything, or what are you doing? Oh, I'm trying to fix a second act. And <laughs> I'll never forget it. And, and, and I would be in his plays, and I would go as an actor. You'd get the first draft. You'd get the reading draft, which was hardly legible then the second and the third and the fourth. Now you're into previews. Now you're into opening night. And by then, the writing process 
I learned by being an actor in Lanford Wilson's plays. And then I would sit with him and just, you know, I, just, I hung on every word he would say, I'm going to cut that. Why? Why? Because I hate it or because it doesn't work. It doesn't <laughs> you just, you're taking notes. And, and, and he, he was an important part of my life until he passed away a few years ago. A very important part. He was always, he was, the, he was a true American artist, as is Marshall. Um, but I just gravitated to the writing, not the directing. I never wanted to direct. I don't care about directing. But I do care about writing. And, and I wanted to learn how to be really good at it like he was. And I've spent my life trying to do that. You actually wrote a film many years later that was kind of based on your relationship with him and him later in life yeah. when he was adrift and came out to the theater that you, uh, that you created in, in Michigan, uh, the theater company, and, uh, and you inveigled him into returning to writing that he had walked away from, and he wrote brilliant plays for, uh, for you. Yeah, um, Guest Artist was the play I wrote after the, an incident where I had gone to Lanford before that and said, look, we're eight, we're our, our Purple Rose Theater Company in Chelsea, Michigan, we're eight years old. I think I've got about 15 to 20 actors that are ready to handle a play that you would write. Well, that's very nice of you, but I haven't written in 10 years and I've already written my great play, I'm done. Thank you very much. Okay, here's some money. I know you need money. Um, come on out and let's just talk about it. Okay. And he got on a train. He wouldn't fly. He got on a train and it landed in Toledo at six in the morning. And there I was meeting him on the platform. I don't think he was drunk. He was drinking at that time, but he did stumble off the train and, um, had in fairness, it. six o'clock is awfully early. So they're well, of... I mean, yeah. So I'm probably waking up. Let's give him that. But, but he was. There was some drinking going on. That 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 in by the end of his life, and after he had he had written two plays for us, he did, he went ahead and and wrote them. It was tough because when we commissioned him, he didn't write a word for six months. And it was one of those, do you have a draft? Anything we can look at? Um, and he goes, I haven't written a word in six months. Do you want the money back? No, get on the train again. Come out out here. We're going to put up Hot El Baltimore. We'll put up that play. I'll direct it. I want you to show you us doing you. And if after that you can't do it, no problem. But at least look. And he came out and he looked at it. And, you know, Chelsea, Michigan is not the center of the arts world by any stretch. You're bringing professional theater to them. And he leaned over in the middle of the first act of Hot Al and he goes, do you think they have any idea what it is they're seeing? And I said, some of them do. The trick is to get the rest of them to see it too. And that's the mission. He went back home. He wrote a play that ended up doing really well. Not only for us, but for him, it went to the Humana Festival in Louisville and won that year as best new play west of the Hudson River, whatever the hell the thing is. And then he wrote another one called Rain Dance. And by the time he was writing Rain Dance with us, he had quit drinking and was, you know, on his way back and then died of uh, heart failure, I believe. Um, but he came back and um, as a person, as a human being, as a playwright. And, and because of that incident at the Toledo train station at six in the morning, that triggered an idea for a play called Guest Artist, where I wrote about a playwright from New York, hadn't written in years, Pulitzer Prize winner, being picked up by an apprentice in a bus station, and they never leave the bus station because he hasn't written a word, and here's the check, and... and you know, and, and it goes, it, it, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good examination of the arts in America, certainly in the middle of America. And then, and then we made a film of it, like, well, we just made a film of it later, which came out this summer on video. And, you know, one of the independent film where we use, I was in it, Tim Busfield directed it, and we used all, all the people, the other people in it are from the Purple Rose. You became, and then you started getting film parts. Uh, the 
Purple Rose Theater uh, is, I assume, derivative of your big breakthrough role for you in the Purple Rose of Cairo, a Woody Allen film in the mid-'80s. Is that where you derived the name for the theater? Yeah, it was. Uh, it changed my life. When Woody Allen cast me in that movie, my life changed. Uh, I was suddenly... Why? I was good enough for Woody Allen. And at the time, Woody was one of the premier, if not premier, American filmmaker, 1985. And to be for an actor to be in a Woody Allen movie was like being in a Lanford Wilson play for an off-Broadway actor. It was gold. And what made him so unique and so important as a director for an actor? His films didn't look like anybody else's. And he was so anti-Hollywood, anti-formula. There was mm-hmm. story structure in there. Woody, Woody knows how to do that. But, but it was just only Woody Allen would, would, would write that or shoot that that way. It's the same thing with any piece of art or song. Or only Lyle Lovett would write that line. Only John Prine would do that verse that way. You'd go, that's John Prine. And that's, that was Woody at the time. And, and now I get not one but two roles in a Woody Allen movie. And what it did was, and it, it happened right after that, was if I'm good enough for Woody Allen, I'm good enough for anybody. That was when I said to myself after that movie, I'm, I may not be a star, but I know I'm going to be able to work in this business for as long as I, for maybe decades, because I'm good enough for Woody Allen in 1985. Two, I mean, not even a year later, I'm sitting in Mike Nichols' living room and he's meeting with me on Heartburn, the movie he's going to do with Merrill and eventually Jack Nicholson. And, and I finally said to Mike, I said, would you like me to read a scene or something? He goes, you're good enough for Woody Allen. You're good enough for me. Huh. You must have some feelings about what's happened to him since. Yeah. And uh, I mean, were you shocked by all of that? And, and how do you process that as someone who obviously looks to him as, uh, as an artistic mentor, if, if nothing else? I still do. I can't delete that. That's the Woody Allen I knew. I didn't know about anything else. You know, mm-hmm. when I was with him, he and Mira, Mia Farrow were in love. You could see it offset. I mean, it was just they loved, adored each other. That's the Woody Allen I know. The great writer of the of the the short stories and all that. I feel like there are, you know, Matt Lauer is a friend. Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to do with that? You know, you get on the Today Show with Willie Geist and he hits you with that. Mm-hmm. Would you work with Woody Allen again? I don't know. Would you work with Matt Lauer again? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's like we're collateral damage for other people's horrible, horrendous baggage. I don't know what to do with it, to be honest. You know, I, yeah. I, don't, I, I, I feel like you put your faith in people and then they disappoint you. And are you supposed to throw them under the bus? I guess so. I guess that's what we're supposed to do with people, but it's hard to let go of someone who changed your life and had such belief in you at a time when, when that's all he was, the great American mm-hmm. filmmaker, and you're just an actor trying to survive in a business where you're not supposed to. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. One of the things that uh, your success at that, in that period of time did for you was it allowed you to make a decision about where you were going to spend your life that was uh, counter to, again, the sort of uh, typical path of a, of a movie star, of a famous actor and you came back to Chelsea with your family you you've you married your high school sweetheart uh, I knew her in high school yeah I played basketball with her brothers I didn't hook up with her till I was in New York but yeah pretty much yeah she's we Kathleen and I went to uh, we were in school together she's four years younger and we were in some of those musicals together uh, she was in the chorus I was you know Cornelius Hackle and Hello Dolly I knew of her, but, you know, it wasn't until a couple of years in New York that I went back home and there she was and I just fell in love. And then by the mid 80s, late 80s, there you guys were. You you made a decision that you were going to go back home. At the time, it was 1986. It had been 10 years in New York City. We had a one bedroom apartment on 82nd and Columbus. 
all you heard were the horror stories about schools and you got to get him into a private school and it's going to cost a lot of money. And we had a two year old boy and we wanted to have a couple more kids. And, and we had been coming back to Michigan for the summers in between movies or whatever. And May to August turned into April to October pretty quickly. And we just said, you know, we can be here if we want. Well, there's an airport in Detroit. And I, I also, and I, I was fatalistic about the career. I just didn't think it would last. And so when it's over, when you get the call that, that the agent's going, you know, and, I, and I've heard my agent said this once about another actor. I said, you know, we were casting. So I said, what about so-and-so? And he goes, no, no, he's over. And you're going, oh, that's, yeah, how that's quick, tough. That's how quick it can happen. So I just said, let's go back home. Our families are there and, and I'll just, I'll be the guy that goes everywhere. You guys stay in one place. Let's raise the kids like we were raised. We understand how to do that. Um, we can afford to do that. Um, and, and that's what we did. But I think it was also, I didn't want to be a star. I had no interest in that. I just wanted to be a good actor between action and cut. I don't want anything else. I didn't care about any of that. I just didn't care. It was all false to me. And that, a lot of that comes from Circle Rep and Marshall and Lanford. You know, Lanford was famous, at least for me, for saying, you're going to do movies? Movies are bupkis. I mean, he just <laughs> hated Hollywood. And so as a young 20-something, that sticks with you. So I, I just didn't want that. And if the career went away, I gave it my best shot. And now I can work at the lumber company and, you know, I'll be happy. I'll be okay. But it kept going, and, and now I think also it was trying to, whatever I had as a kid, that natural ability, I don't want to lose that. I don't want to go somewhere and become someone else. I want to hang on to whoever that person is that had that, that still has that, and just add on all that technique and experience and wisdom that you've learned from people who were better than you on top of that. And it seemed to me that getting away from it, getting out of LA or away from New York would help me hang on to that. And I think it's worked. Are there actors who you've worked with who, uh, you who you've, you leave that experience and say, man, I learned a lot from that experience. Meryl Streep, best moment-to-moment -moment actor we've got. Um, when you're in a scene with her, uh, this happened in the hours. Um, that thing you plan to do on the third line where you take the book and you toss it off and you look at it and then you come back to her and then she's waiting for you. As if, are you done doing that? <laughs> because there's two, there are two people, and man froze. Every take was a little bit different. She would match. She would pick up the glasses when she was supposed to pick up the glasses, so it would cut in editing. But every one of those takes had a little different spin on it. It was a curveball instead of a slider, and now it's a fastball. Mm -hmm. And you had to listen and react. I walked away going, I just learned a master class in film acting. Nicholson, when I watched Nicholson... Jim Brooks let me come in and see the dailies for Jack. He wouldn't let me see mine, which was a great, that's fine, no problem. Still haven't looked at dailies. Watch Jack Nicholson and Shirley MacLaine do the scene in the kitchen where Jack talks about one, being one of 106 astronauts. Yeah, take in terms one, of take interior, two, yeah. take three, take four. Jack doesn't quite know it. He's working on the lines. He can't remember that, or now he gets it, now he doesn't. Five takes. And it's like seeing Jack Nicholson bad or not on top of it yet. Take six, there it is. Take seven, there it is, and something to eight, nine, ten, six to ten were wow. And Jim Brooks turned to me and said, which one do I use? And it was just such a lesson in rehearsing on film and using instincts and impulses in front of the camera that I just said, that's what's different than the stage. In the stage, we would have rehearsed that scene for six weeks, done 45 previews, and then brought in the cameras. 
We mentioned earlier the uh, Purple Rose Theater Company there in Chelsea. Tell me why you decided to start the theater company, because obviously what you're doing in some ways is imparting the lessons you've learned to, to other people. I, I, I had been in, in Michigan for about three years, was, was creatively bored. Uh, I was playing a lot of golf, a um, little bit of guitar, but basically that, that whole energy you get on a movie set or, or in, in, in the theater, that, all that creativity that's going around, I, I, I missed it. And also, you know, I, I used to be, you know, a 21-year-old kid walking around that town with some talent and not a clue as to what to do with it or how to refine it. So initially it was, let me build, let me buy a building in town. Let me see what's out, what's out there. Who's out there? Doesn't matter. Everybody, come on in. I need all the actors and playwrights and directors. And there weren't that many. And I had to take this ragtag group of people that showed up at the open audition and turned them from amateurs into professionals based on the things people like Meryl Streep taught me. I'm going to teach them to you. And if that 21-year-old kid is in that room, he or she is going to get more than I ever did. There's the give back. And then in the process, it became, well, maybe I could write plays too, because I'd love to do what Lanford does. And, and, I could write funny, so I, I started leading with comedies, and then after you know thirty years and eighteen plays, I'm a playwright of sorts. So it, it, the personal side was that. the The other side was let's give back to that kid I used to be. Have there been young people who passed through your theater company who have gone on to do? Other things, I don't want to say bigger things, but uh, uh, other things in theater and film. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say bigger because it's such a it's such a rat race, and it's such a tough business. It's so subjective. They must come to you for advice on all of that, huh? Well, yeah, sometimes not. You know, sometimes we've had some people go on. You know, Matt and Brian Lusher, a couple guys that that are doing well out in L.A. really well as writers and actors. We've had other people come through the apprentice program and go on to be artistic directors of local theater companies, you know, whatever they learned from us, they took with them, mm -hmm. you know, but that, that's kind of, we've had people go to New York after being with us and not make it, not have it and not, not be able to withstand the rejection and the, you know, it was seven years before I got terms of endearment mm -hmm. and seven years is a long time in, in New York city. Well, certainly before the pandemic with the rents and everything, it's, mm -hmm. it's tough. I mean, I had, I lived in one room and 23rd street and seventh and my rent went from 225 a month to 250. So I had to move to Staten Island cause I couldn't afford it. Hmm. it hasn't changed just the prices have changed, but you know, so it's, it's tough on the young actors to go. It, 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 it always is. It's a tough mm -hmm. business. I could run through the list of all the great movies in which you have, uh, you have played and you have starred. Uh, I could ask you about the Dumb and Dumber movies, which were sure. seemed like sort of an aberration. No, I don't want to actually. I want to talk to you about a different <laughs> professional relationship uh, that you uh, that you had, and that's with Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, because you know when you talk about the iconic figures with whom you've worked, he's certainly one of them, and many people remember you from the newsroom. Uh, mm -hmm. In addition to your films, Sorkin is such an interesting character because he writes this impossibly smart and rapid-fire dialogue that must be hard to master. And it's not that he's unaware of the imperfections in the world, but he maintains this sort of idealism about the country, about democracy, about what could be if people rally. So tell me about taking that role in the newsroom and what appealed to you about that. You played uh, Will McAvoy, who was kind of a world-weary anchor man. And tell me about that role. Yeah, he, um, I had been a fan of Aaron since West Wing. I told him, I said, I watched West Wing to watch the writing. And, and again, coming from Lanford Wilson, I want to know that it's been written. I don't want to see a bunch of actors improving. I, I, I love when it's written. I, I, in New York, I would watch Preston Sturgis movies, knowing that mm -hmm. Preston Sturgis had had his hands on every word of it. Same thing with Sorkin. 
you, you, and he, one of his guys is Patty Chayefsky in Network. Mm-hmm. You see yeah. William Holden in the room with Faye Dunaway, and there's a third person there, and it's Patty Chayefsky. They're all three in that room when you're watching that scene, and I like that. So when you watch a West Wing or you get the newsroom script, you know that you're going to be riding a horse called Aaron Sorkin, but you're going to be on a horse. You're going to be on Secretariat. So hang on. <laughs> and that's a whole different thing than some script that's been cobbled together by four screenwriters and a junior executive with notes. It's a whole different deal. It's the singular voice of one writer. So they came and, and I, we were trying to do something on television with another network and it didn't work out. And so I just, I, they said, well, there's this thing at HBO called Newsroom, Aaron Sorkin, Scott Rudin. And I said, how do I get it? And I had to go meet him at a hotel in New York, which I did. And Scott was there. And the only question was whether I could get angry enough. He'd never seen me angry. He had seen God of Carnage, which is a play I'd done on Broadway with Jim Gandolfini and Marsha Marcia Harden and Hope Davis. But I, I, you know, and I got angry in that a little bit, but not like McAvoy needed to get angry. And so I was kind of tipped to that. And so I went to the breakfast meeting and told a story about sometime when I'd gotten angry at somebody and slammed the table and the, the eggs and the orange juice bounced and people turned their heads at the Four Seasons restaurant going, this, and Aaron's going, okay, all right, okay, got, got it, got it. Got it. <laughs> Let's talk about the co-star. I said, well, you know, I'd love to do it. No, 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 you, you got it. We, we, you're, you're, you're in. So that was great. And, and then it was, uh, I had such respect for him as a writer. Uh, having written myself, it allowed me to understand better what he was trying to say and how he was trying to say it in a way that didn't look like formula or didn't smell like writing. You know, my job was to get on top of that and know what he was trying to do and roll it word for word, the way he had written, no improvs, don't add a word, don't subtract a word. That's the rule going in, which is the theater. That's what we did with Lanford. No big deal. Um, So that was the rule. And I, I said on it, You memorized Aaron Sorkin word for word. As a friend of mine said, he said, who had worked with him, he said, wait till you see what you get to say. And that Northwestern speech. Yes, the the opening speech of the series. Yeah, it was not in the original script. It was just something they referred to in the first five pages that Will had done. And Aaron determined near the shooting of that episode, we need to see what happened. So he wrote that speech about two weeks before we shot it. And I went over it and over it and over it because it was, you know, not a simple learn. And I was able to get on top of it, which is what you want. And on Broadway, I I say it takes 100 performances to get on top of the script so that you can dance on top of it and not lose your way or forget a line or 100 performances. And so that's what you're trying to do with the reps, tries to learn it and learn it and learn it and learn it before the one day you get to do it. Yeah. And we should point out that that speech was really Will McAvoy talking about the world as it as it is in contrast with the world as we uh, imagine it is uh, or the, the, the ideal idealized version of the world. Uh, and it was a very a, a sharp, acerbic um, kind of challenge to people to focus on what on on the world as it is. Is that a fair summation of it? Yeah, we're real good at telling everybody how great we are. Mm-hmm. We're real good at that. You know, I th- I think he was onto something then. I think he's more onto something now with that speech. The best part of the speech is the second half where he, where Will McAvoy says we aren't the greatest country in the world for the reasons I've just said. And you can argue those if you want. I'm more concerned about the fact that we could be the greatest country in the mm-hmm. world. And here's how we do that. We stop belittling education. We start treating people who don't look like us with respect on and on and on and on and on and on. He is completely on point even back then so that you get to now the fall of 2020 and you go, no, no we aren't the greatest country in the world. Maybe if we deal with systemic racism, maybe then we can call ourselves that, but I'm sure there'll be a few other things, but no, we're far from it. 
Aaron was yeah. onto something even back then. And when you, obviously you've played, you played a lot of roles, uh, and you don't necessarily start by relating to the words or the person you're playing. You have to work your way into that. But it sounds to me, and I've read enough about what you've, what you've said on the public record that, uh, that did reflect your view. I mean, you just said it. How much of you was in that character or is that, was that just a character that Sorkin created that you slid into? I slid into him, but I was one of those people who later, after they had seen the show, came to me and said, you know, I saw it, and I saw that Northwestern speech, and it's how I feel and it's how I think, but I couldn't have said it better. He articulated what I'm feeling so much better than I could have said it. That's, I felt like one of those people when I got to say those words. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. What's uh, remarkable to me about the West Wing is that I run this Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, and these young kids still watch that and are inspired by it, inspired by, you know, now it seems almost like a quaint thing, but he he writes in the poetry of democracy the, in, a, in a way that really, that really is moving. And, and that was true of the newsroom as well. You know, cable news is not trading very high right now in the public's estimation, but as in the West Wing, he, he found kind of rough nobility in the mission. The idealism that, that Sorkin clings to, it, it, it's the hope, it's the optimism, it's the belief in the rule of law and institutions and that the Constitution matters and we can't futz with that. All of that, all of that, at a time when truth isn't truth, according to Giuliani, that there are alternative facts, according to Kellyanne Conway, and where don't believe what you see and hear from Trump. I mean, here we are. Everybody go back and read George Orwell. We're there. Aaron was calling us on it. He's not the only one. You also worked with him. I had a chance to see you on stage in To Kill a Mockingbird in his remake of, uh, or his, his play of To Kill a Mockingbird. And if you saw, <coughs> if you read the book or you saw the movie with Gregory Peck, it was a different, it was a much different representation of Atticus Finch. Uh, than uh, than the sort of idealized or version that you see in the film. I read somewhere that you spent two and a half years preparing for that role. Talk to me about the Atticus Finch that you played and that Sorkin created and how you inhabited that role. To boil it down, what, what Aaron did was change the point of view of Scout. Uh, our Scout... Atticus's uh, daughter, yeah. Yeah, played by Celia Keenan-Bolger, was in her late 20s looking back at what happened when she was eight. And so she could look back. And, and that allowed Aaron to take the point of view away from an eight-year-old girl. It's now a 28-year-old girl. But it, an eight-year-old girl, girl looking up at Gregory Peck like he's on Mount Rushmore from the first minute of the film on. And the book's the same way. Yes, And that's fine. That's the point of view. And the one who changes in that story is Scout. She loses her innocence. In the play, Aaron made Atticus Finch a small-town lawyer who was in charge of land service agreements to foreclosures, you know, just basic lawyering, trying to raise two kids without a mother with the help of Calpurnia. That's who he was. That's all he was. He stayed on his porch. He didn't get involved. And as I did the research on Jim Crow South and the devastation of that and, and the horridness of that, and if you really want to read about it, Isabel Wilkerson's case lays it out even better. Yeah, Atticus was the guy on his porch, and Bob Ewell would walk by and go, I wanted to know what Atticus saw on his porch in 1934 Alabama as a small-town lawyer raising kids. That's all I wanted to know. That was page one for me and Aaron. And Bob Ewell will walk by and say, you coming to the lynching Thursday? We got a couple of them. 
you missed the one last Tuesday. We ain't seeing you there, Atticus. You might want to step around uh, behind the supermarket on Thursday. You do what you're going to do, Bob. You know, Atticus would never go. He was like those people in the middle today. I'm not involved. I'm not going to, you know. And Aaron's play, we see Atticus become Atticus. We see him take those ideals and, and even take some of his his beliefs that there's goodness in everyone, even Bob Ewell. And Aaron goes, not so much. I'm afraid that's not true, Atticus. And we had to send Atticus through that, that chamber of horrors all the way to a closing argument where you stand on the stage at the Schubert Theater in front of 14 predominantly white faces and they don't move. There was something different about the play than the book, than the movie. You watch the movie, you read the book, you feel the play. And I would stand there eight times a week for a year and lay into that and turn to the audience in the last third of that closing argument and lay into them like they were the jury. Shame on you for letting this happen. Shame on you. I mean, in the, but in, in Aaron's words, they didn't move. You could feel the stillness. You could feel the silence. Actors dream of moments like that. I had it every night for a year, and it was throwing a right hook to the chin of white America. Again, which is what people like Isabel Wilkerson have done with her book, Cased. Uh, it, it's, it's an awakening, and it's not just George Floyd. Right. We got a lot of people that, you know, are George Floyd, and they're all socially woke, and that's terrific. Welcome. Glad you're here. Where were you with Trayvon Martin? Where were you when Dylan Roof shot up the black church? Where were you with Charlottesville? Where were you with Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri? After Michael Brown was shot, I wrote a play called Flint in our little white town, white theater company, Flint. And it was, everyone thought it was going to be a movie star slamming the Republican governor. It wasn't. It was me looking at systemic racism in the city of Flint and why the water was a catalyst for that happening, to expose that, that as Carol Anderson writes, white rage versus black advancement. We put that play up three years before George Floyd, you know? How did people react to it? We were prepared for anything. I was ready to come in and stand in front of the TV cameras and go, what's your problem? But it was the truth. It was like that closing argument of Kill a Mockingbird. It was a right hook to everyone sitting in that, that, those seats. We had a lot of people from Flint come down and were in tears. You know, the, the, the talkbacks afterwards, you know, you know, auto workers, line workers who'd lost their jobs because the car companies had moved, moved everybody out. You know, the jobs were gone. And they were just, they were, it was like looking at their life. And the white character was written fairly. He was a white you know, line worker who was the foreman of the black guy that, that, that he was with. It was two, it was a white couple and a black couple. And basically it boiled down to no one can be below the white guy. Or, so the black people have to be below the white guy. The white guy can't be at the bottom, not in America. And I think that speaks a lot to what is going on now, is that a lot of these people, all they have to hang on to is the whiteness of their skin. And that's what they're fighting for. And that's 400 years old. You talked about the, the reaction to George Floyd and the marches and the sort of perf what some of my young friends would, would call performance wokeness, where people marched and they felt good about marching and so on. What is your sense of the progress that will come from it or lack of it? I mean, are you, do you feel like we're at a moment here that is meaningful? Are we at a hinge moment? Uh, well, I, in, in so many ways, yeah, and it all boils down to November 3rd. I mean, if you want to see progress uh, in, in Black Lives Matter, then, then Biden needs to be the next president. I mean, it's just, that's it. If he's not, um, hang on, you know? I mean, it, it's, uh, I'm worried about this country in November, December, and January, to be honest, uh, regardless of who wins. But uh, the first step, 
is saving a democracy so that this the future of this country, which is not you and me, by the way, right? We're two, we're, we're two old white guys. I mean, that, that ship is sailed. <laughs> That's been pointed out to me, my friend. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I, I, no, I get it. Okay, I get it. It's your country, but you damn well better vote. You damn well better get your friends to vote because I think I, I take it, go, run. Your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, you got the energy, you got the ambition. Go protest the guys that aren't doing what you want. Go go run for office. Get involved. November 3rd is is D-Day. And and I hope it happens. I, I have great faith that a lot of this will end up showing up at the voting booth. Um I think the one of the things that I, I, I think people forget is the Million Women's March was it the day after the inauguration of Trump. They're yes. still out there, probably in even bigger numbers than ever four years later. You got to vote. You got to vote. You got to vote. You know, you have an interesting perspective because you are you've spent a career in the theater, career in film, show business. You're you're a, you're a star. And I'm wondering what you think about celebrity and politics, because we've seen, uh, you know, how strongly, you know, Hollywood has come out uh against Trump, uh, how strongly uh, the the artistic community has come out uh, against Trump. And I'm wondering if at some point that becomes a little counterproductive uh, because there is a sort of element of judgment, not just about Trump, but about people who support him that I think can be off-putting to folks in the state of Michigan, for example, where you spend most of your life. Yeah, I've always been torn on the value of celebrities uh, stepping forward to tell you who to vote for uh, in whatever election. Um, I've never wanted, I've never given to political campaigns. I don't like the fact that money is in politics and that decisions are made based on donors and things like that. So I've always kind of held back. And I, I, I think there is value in it if you happen to be, in my case, from the state that is going to be in play come November, I can certainly see and, and have grown up in the Midwest thinking and being told that because I'm not from the coasts, I'm not as enlightened. I'm not as smart. I'm flyover, you know, all that stuff. And many of us here resent that. But then when you move back here and you're an actor who's famous and you're being asked opinions about politics, uh, I think it's okay to speak up. And knowing that I'm not trying to change your vote, I'm just trying to get you to listen to another point of view. If you don't like me because I'm a Hollywood liberal, then you don't know where I live. You know, I'm just somebody that doesn't like what's going on whenever he sees Trump on television, opening his mouth. I'm tired of the lies, aren't you? I happen to be an actor, but so what? You know, I could be a plumber. I could be running a lumber company. I'd still be railing against the fact that the guy has no sense of decency, civility, respect for anyone other than himself. I'd still be saying that whether I was an actor or a plumber or running a lumber company, doesn't matter. But if you don't like it because I'm an actor and you're going to tie me into all the other people that are, you know, whatever we're supposed to be based on your stereotype of what we're supposed to be for you, then great. I can't help you. All I can do is try to inform you. If you don't like my opinion, change the channel. What would your advice be to your colleagues in the, in the community, in the artistic community about how they approach this? I would tell everybody to quit pounding people over the head. Uh, I know you're angry. I'm angry. You're outraged. So am I. This election is going to come down to Again, if, if they're there, the 20% in the middle, not the 40 on the left and the 40 on the right, they're gone. They're going to do what they're going to do. It's that 20% in the middle. Find a way to talk to them. Find a way to reach them. Quit telling them they're stupid. Quit telling them they're, they don't know anything. You know, they do. They know, how, they know that they got to put meat, you know, food on the table and keep their job. And, and that becomes the survival, that week-to-week survival that so many in the middle of the country have to do, whether they're on a farm or in a company or wherever they are. Teachers, for God's sakes, teachers. What's important to them? And then explain to them why Biden might be better than Trump, you know, or explain about decency or just, 
would you have Trump running your farm? Would you have him running your plumbing outfit that, that you have your eight employees? Would you like it if, if you, you know, come on, you know, just, just, you got to talk to them. You can't tell them to eat their asparagus and not leave the table until they do just like you, because you know best. That's not going to cut it. We're, we're, we, our bullshit detector in the Midwest is, you know, we smell it pretty quickly. Pretty keen. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, we don't like being told what to do by someone from supposedly because of the fact that you live on either coast, you know better. No, you don't. Well, that's what I would do. I would tell them, talk to the 20% in the middle. Let's talk uh, about the Comey rule. It is an adaptation of Jim Comey's book, A Higher uh, Loyalty. And it is a, I would say, a heroic depiction at the end of the day of, of Comey. Uh, and, uh, but you know that there are both Republicans and Democrats who have less than heroic memories of him and what he did in 2016. And I was wondering, um, you know, how, how you absorb all of that and what your uh, feelings were going into the role. Uh, I didn't know how to do it. Uh, I looked at it as a role. I loved the controversy. I loved that he was equally hated by both sides of the aisle, depending on the day of the week. Um, that didn't bother me at all. As a dramatic character, he was between a rock and a hard place several times. And that's interesting. That's just basic storytelling. Did you have feelings about him? I, if I did, uh, they weren't strong enough to, you know, blame him for everything. Mm -hmm. I certainly could have been, what the hell is he doing when in October 2016, when the FBI reopened the Hillary email investigation for the 30,000 emails? What the hell is he thinking? And, and, and didn't really think about it. after. I certainly watched him in front of the Senate, watched him be vilified um crucified by some and and then when i got the script oh you want to know what the hell he was thinking this is what he was thinking this is what he was up against these are the these are the facts on if you choose this way or this way rock and a hard place which one do you do and and the film lays out what he was thinking you may not agree you may hate him even more i don't really care but at least I learned a lot about what Jim was up against. He'd been accused of being self-righteous and a Boy Scout, and his you know, moral rectitude was bigger than yours. And, and I, I, you, know, you study the guy, and he believes in this stuff. He believes in the rule of law. That is, it, he believes it's sacred. He believes truth, justice, the Department of Justice, the institutions that make America not Russia. He believes in all that stuff, and he believes that it is bigger than we are, and that you can't just toss the Constitution aside or cherry pick it. You can't do the same with truth, with facts. All of it. And that, that was Jim. That was Jim's North Star. And when you put an apolitical public servant, which is what I discovered he was, despite the fact that he was a Republican, everything gets pushed to the side, left and right. If you're coming at me politically on this, that, that can affect it. That's irrelevant. What ha is it the rule of law? Is it right? Is it true? Is it justice? And does it protect the integrity of the FBI? Those were his, the, that he was guided by that. And I can see where people would go, yeah, but Jim, you know. Mm -hmm. And as one character in the movie says, you know, Jim thought being right would save him. Mm -hmm. Not too long ago it would have, but not now. Did you spend time with him to prepare? No, I, I, um, I was doing Mockingbird all the way until November. The year's run, I had emailed him in September, October, said, if you're coming to New York, you know, you know where to find me. Um, but I, I wasn't going to chase him. I had the book. I had the audio book of Jim reading it. I had mm -hmm. YouTube. I had even the Colbert show. You know, you could see Jim's sense of humor. I had enough. And Billy Ray, the writer and director, and I, and Billy was a great, I mean, I, I just leaned on Billy because he knew the subject matter and knew Jim far better than I would ever. And so, and I just, you know, if I didn't get an invitation down to Virginia to sit at his table and watch him eat dinner, um, I wasn't going to impose him. I didn't need it. I, I, you know, going into any character, I had plenty. 
you've played historical figures in the past, but this is someone who's living, who everyone has seen, who everyone has watched, and about whom people generally have a point of view. Does that change anything for you? Does it make the assignment more difficult to play someone who, to, to, to keep, uh, to stay away from uh, sort of doing an impersonation and uh, rather than acting? I mean, are there challenges associated with it? Yeah, I, but, but you have to hit delete. It helped having just done Atticus Finch with the ghost of Gregory Peck hanging over me. Mm-hmm. So I knew what working at least with an icon, you know, trying to fit my, find my way in, in, in front of an icon, uh, living, um, you accept it. You know that eventually someday he's going to walk up to you having seen it and he's either going to like it or he's not going to like it. That soon becomes irrelevant. You're not doing it to make Jim Comey like it. You're doing it for an audience. It's just another role. Whether he's living or dead, it's just another role. And your job is to execute that role, the good and the bad. And so it, it, it fast became not important. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it wasn't going to be an impression. It, it, I, had, you know, I mean, Gary Oldman and Churchill and, and Charlie's Theron and Bombshell are two great examples of brilliant performances with a lot of externals, a lot of ornaments on the tree, prosthetics and hair and a cane and a cigar. And there's a lot to work with there. Jim, not so much. And so I, I, and I, I, I knew that we couldn't completely alter my face to look like Jim. We certainly put a hairpiece on. But Billy and I decided soon on that we're just going we're, we're gonna to try to show you what he's thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, you're watching it. You've seen Jim Comey so much that you know it's not Jim Comey. So why try to pretend it is? It's Jeff, but inside Jeff is Jim Comey thinking his way through these scenes. And that was our goal, to suggest him, not to impersonate him. It's a two-part series. I thought maybe the, one of the most revealing scenes was a scene you did with Holly Hunter, who plays Sally Yates, the yeah. acting attorney general, after Comey had dispatched FBI agents to, to the White House to interrogate Michael Flynn uh, without clearing it with uh, the Justice Department or her. Uh, and she was very angry at him and she upbraided him because this was several incidents like this. And this is the sort of commentary on Comey. Everything you say about him, is, uh, people would say, yes, I, I believe that. But that he feels so deeply about these principles that he arrogates to himself uh, authorities that he really d- doesn't have because he is because he feels he's right. And it's the righteous thing to do. And it, it's his duty to do them. And she kind of says, you know what? Not so much. You, you, there actually is. And I, I thought that was really revealing. I mean, that is the sort of unresolved question about Jim Comey is, uh, did he just does did he arrogate too much authority to himself because he thought he was the possessor of what was right and just and in keeping with our constitutional principles? And there's a flaw, which for the actor is great. That's gold. Yeah. Great. He's not perfect. He's a human being. Terrific. And, and with Sally, and, and she worked for Loretta, and Loretta yeah. had been on the, Loretta you know, Lynch, on the yes. plane with the Clintons, yeah. and he just felt that, that in his mind that they were mm, not tainted or compromised, but he was less so. And, and that just that became part of why he did what he did. It certainly wasn't a slam dunk and an easy decision. That's for sure. The depiction of Trump in this is, is to say the least, uh, unflattering. Uh, and the movie is landing, you know, in the closing stanza of the campaign. Are you uh, concerned that it will be viewed as political propaganda rather than, than theater? Sure. Absolutely. I'm not concerned about it. It will be. It just will be. That's the world we live in. That's the country we live in now. Neither right or your left. There's no in between. I'd like to think there's an in between. I'd like to think there is 20% of the country that's still there, that there are Republicans out there who can't stand Trump, who can't stand the loss of decency and civility and respect and 
and belief in the rule of law and things like that. I'd like to think there are Republicans or what used to be Republicans uh, are still out there. Maybe they'll watch it and learn something and go, you know what, maybe it's okay to vote for Biden, get this country back, at least pointed in the right direction. And maybe the Republican Party then can come back as something better than it was, you know? You live in a battleground state, and do you have these conversations with your neighbors? You must have a lot of, you were raised in a Republican household, must be a lot of Republicans around you. Uh, do you have these conversations? Um, what you find out when you come back to Michigan for the pandemic is that it's not New York or L.A. You've got to be careful when you start to spout off your political viewpoints, because you're going to find that friend of yours for 40 years is going to vote for Trump. And then they're going to walk by and they're going to have the Trump T-shirt on. And you're just going, yeah, we're a swing state. That's for sure. They're all here. And, and, the, and the flip side of that. And so, you, you know, part of it, and I think the Comey rule will at least help inform some people. Um, I hope I can't deal with the people on the right. And the people on the left are going to do what they're going to do for Biden and all of that. It's the people in the middle. If, 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 if something I might say to someone or, or the Comey rule might inform them a little bit more than they were informed in October of 2016, then we will have done a good thing, despite all the hate watching. You know, that's the thing that, that I think back, you look back to October 2016, Eh, I don't like Hillary, so I'll vote for Trump. My taxes will get cut. That's a good thing. And he's going to have 10 guys around him that are going to stop him from doing something stupid or crazy or dangerous. So, you know, I'm good. I'm good. I'm okay with Trump. Well, those 10 guys are gone. And the Russians are coming again. And those same people that, that made the decision to kind of vote that way are taking a hard look at it. And I think the more people speak up, Comey rule, things I might do, things I might say, if it helps sway some people who are going, you know what, they kind of lost me with Sarah Palin, to be honest. Yeah, remember that? Remember Sarah Palin? You got to do better. And, and you got to look at the country, not just a party. Get off your Republican ass and start thinking about the United States of America. Jeff Daniels, it is great to be with you. We never got to your music and your six albums, which people can find on, on uh, uh, wherever they search for their music, but it's very good to be with you. Um, I admire your work, and I admire you for the way you Thank do you, it and the way you live your life. So wonderful to be with you. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.